regret to inform you that we don't have a new Education Gadfly Show podcast for November 11th due to technical difficulties. However, here is a replay of one of our favorites. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Our producer, Liz. Awesome. Our Irish national non-American <laughs> won the bracket. So that there shows you, you how, go. how good we are at forecasting That's basketball true. here at Fordham. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Michelle Lerner of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Coach K of Ed Reform, Robert Pendicio. Uh, a blue devil at heart. Uh, a blue devil dad, maybe uh, one. Maybe. maybe. But, but yeah, my daughter just went to look at uh, Duke last week, among other schools. And, and uh, I, I'm you know, not going to speak for her, but she liked it. What's not to like? It's a beautiful school and, and one great basketball team. Are you a fan of Duke or are you a hater of Duke? You know, I, I've got to be honest, when you grow up in, as I did in the New York area, college sports is just not the thing that it is pretty much everywhere, everywhere else. That's not New York. Um, so I, I, I'm coming to love college sports uh, because of my daughter. But no, I was uh, only followed the pro game. And uh, although Duke could probably beat the New York Knicks uh, easily. They're, they're pretty lousy right now. Well, my brother is a huge Duke fan and he so he's very happy today. But he's also starting a family feud. My mm-hmm. husband a huge Louisville Cardinals fan. And yes, my brother texts mean things to Daniel every time the Cards lose and Duke wins, which happened more often this season. Last year, wasn't it the other way around? Louisville won or two years ago. Yeah, but... You know, when you start a family feud, you don't really think about history. Uh, Exactly right, yeah. Gives you something to argue about uh, at holidays. Yeah, because we don't have enough. (laughs) And don't worry, you'll make more. And on that note, let's play Pardon the Gadfly. A group of Atlanta educators were just convicted of RICO violations for their role in the city's cheating scandal. What does this mean for test-based accountability? Ooh, nothing good. Um, look, I mean, I, I love accountability as much as the next guy, and and I, I, tests are important. And if it weren't for testing, uh, some some schools, in particular schools that serve low-income kids of color, would just not be getting the attention and the oxygen that they would be otherwise. Uh, but did we really want to see it come to this with elementary school teachers convicted of racketeering, just like those years. mobsters? Oh man. Man, I mean, is, yeah. it, is it just me, Michelle, or does this just feel like a bridge too far? Well, I think there's the whole communications aspect of hauling away teachers in handcuffs. Oh, it's right. just not a good visual. Um, I mean, they did something wrong and they have now been convicted of that. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think anyone's saying, you know, they shouldn't have absolutely been punished. But it, I do think the fact that we've gotten here is is worth considering. So did you read Chad Alderman's piece on Campbell's Law on, on this topic? No, I did not. Which no. he's basically arguing, you know, we can't just say this is Campbell's Law, that if you have any sort of accountability system, people are going to find a way to game it. I don't sure. think that's the answer. I think that's the answer if you don't like accountability. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's right, and you know, I've, I've talked about it here and elsewhere. I, I've kind of had my dark night of the soul about accountability. I mean, you know, uh, the, the the tests that we have, they work, they're they're fair, they, they they do what they're supposed to do, and they're deeply unpopular. And and, and the uh, and, and they could even threaten the entire edifice of reform, if you like. On the other hand, the methods that are more popular, things like you know, portfolio assessments, performance, authentic, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, they are so easily gameable that uh, if you're going to have Campbell's law about anything, you're going to have it there. So I, you know, look, I'm no smarter about this than I ever have been. I simply don't know how you square this circle. We don't like tests and they lead people to do bad things. And, and the alternative methods are just kind of squishy and insubstantial. 
Well, and I think testing is an imperfect measure, but it's the best measure we have. And I'm saying this as someone who's not great on standardized testing, who thinks I can be judged better elsewhere, but testing is what we can use. And I think it's worth using. I think we should not abandon testing. No, 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 no. I'm not saying thinking we should either, but, but boy, uh, it just, it really, uh, gives me pause to see again, this idea that we're now seeing criminal convictions, prosecutions of racketeering elementary school teachers in handcuffs facing 20 years of hard time. I just don't think that this is a good thing for reform and a good thing for, it's the type of thing that could put it this way, sap the political will and energy around ed reform. Unfortunately, I think you're right. Ellen, question number two. A New York Times investigation of Eva Moskowitz's Success Academies unearthed some polarizing practices. Are you a fan of Eva's approach? Ah, uh, wow. What a, what a great question. Um, it's complicated. Michelle and I were talking about this earlier, that every good conversation about education sooner or later gets to, it's complicated. So let's just get right to it at the beginning. It's complicated. Look, yeah, I am, okay? And and I'm never going to be able to forget the experience that I had teaching in a frankly chaotic South Bronx elementary school for, for, for five years. Um, it, w- once you've had that experience and you see the damage that it does to student learning and engagement, you can't not look at what Eva Moskowitz is doing with Success Academy and think, okay, this this is a good thing. Uh, is she polarizing? You betcha she's polarizing. She doesn't apologize for for running her schools this way. And Lord, look at those results. I mean, the, the test scores that they put up there are just jaw on the floor, knock your fillings out, spectacular. Um, and the other uh, exculpatory thing, I guess you would say, is look at the, the waiting list. I, I don't have the data in front of me, but I think they have, for, for every uh, seat, there's 10 people who, who want a seat. So um, whether or not we in education get and appreciate what Eva is doing, parents sure seem to. Well, and I think we have to remember that that Success Academy exists in a system of choice. I could understand being opposed to some of these methods for your own kids. So don't mm-hmm. send your kid to Success Academy. Or if this was every single public school and didn't matter what parents wanted, this is how your child is going to be educated. I can understand being opposed to that. But guess yeah. what? If you don't like it, you don't have to send your kid there. Sure. I think uh, this does, it's another one of those things, isn't it, that speaks to the inevitability of choice. On the one hand, would I want to see some of of the the practices at a Success Academy be standardized and and used uh, as standard practice? Uh, Probably not. Uh, Do I think that parents should be denied the right to send their child to to one of our schools? Of of course not. You know, what's interesting. I I actually just got off the phone with with even not uh, more than a few minutes ago, because I'm probably going to write something about this. Uh, You know, what's interesting when you talk to her about this and about the New York Times piece is she was a a little irritated, I guess I can fairly say, about what didn't make it into the piece. In other words, she, well, and she, and look, I've been to her school, so I think she's right about this. They do dance, they do debate, they do art, they do hands-on science, et cetera, et cetera. None of that made it into the piece. It was all about Eva and her, and and the the, the stress she puts on kids and the testing. Well, in reading the piece, I was reminded of some of the things that I experienced in my K-12 education, which I went to a private prep school. We mm-hmm. had to wear uniforms. We had to stand up when adults walked into the room to show our respect. I mean, it was a very, very traditional school. It was and also, look how you turned out. And look how I turned out. It was also an all-white upper <laughs> middle class school. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that we should deny that this classic uh, 
discipline, not discipline light education to kids in Harlem. I just, I think there is something positive about a very old school view of schools and high expectations. And I think parents in Harlem, parents everywhere should have the right to opt into this. And And they have. Make no mistake. They, they want it. Look, I have made a joke about this. My father was forever threatening to send me to military school. And I kind of wish he had sometimes I could have used a little bit of that discipline, especially when I was 14 or or, or 15 years old. Um, You know, look, and look how well you turned out. Well, uh, not as well as you, Michelle, but I I think in the end, this piece for, you know, forget Success Academy fan or not a fan, you know, about this piece, I I think whether you like Eva or not, she has become, I think it's fair to say, the most polarizing figure in education now. And a piece like this uh, that Kate Taylor of of the New York Times wrote, it's a bit of a Rorschach test. You tell me what you think about Eva, I will tell you what you think about this piece. I, you're, you're right on there. And the other thing I kept thinking about as I read the piece was, you know, in so many industries, we really hold up hard work, whether mm-hmm. it's the military and how hard our, um, how hard they train, whether it's, you know, these movies about inner city schools and how hard the teacher works. All of these industries, we say, yes, we we, pri- we praise hired work, we praise discipline, we praise all of this stuff, mm-hmm. and yet there's such a pushback. Yeah, and this is what it looks like, folks. Yep. All right, on that note, question number three. Nature's Neuroscience Journal published a study that tried to link family income and parental education to the surface area of children's brains. Thoughts? Wow. Um, I'm not a neuroscience scientist and I don't play one on television. Um, so I'm really uh, uh, not just a little bit, but com- completely out of my depth as to how to respond to this. But it, it does remind me of, of a study that I read a few years ago that I think was in the journal Pediatrics that, that really talked at great length about uh, toxic stress and, and how it changed the formation of, of, of the brain. And it really kind of, for me, changed the way I thought about educating children uh, from, from low-income uh Communities. Not that this is uh, the, the the pure and exclusive province of low income kids, mind you, but but there are all kinds of stressors that are associated with with low income uh, kids, and everything from parental neglect to, neglect to food scarcity, etc. Uh, and if you put a, a small child under enough of these stressors or, or stress conditions, it can physically change the the, the 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 brain and make it that much more difficult for for to develop cognitively. So I wonder if this is not of a piece with that. Well, and Nirav Kingsland blogged about this over on on his blog. And, you know, he's talking about what we should do with taxes. Should we, you know, redistribute income? And I think this falls into everything with education, where if it were just a matter of giving money, that would be easy and we could solve it and go home. Like, you know, it's not just a question hmm. of money. That would be easy. We can just, you know, tax more, give yeah, more money we, around. We da, could da, da, also da, da. just give everybody a high school diploma at birth and then we'll solve the graduation. Exactly. Um, I think this is, you know, uh, speaks to the struggles we have across the ed reform movement of of how to talk about social mobility, how mm-hmm. to uh, do reform. I think on one hand, you have the Eva Moskowitzes out there who are, you know, let's just um, work really hard and high discipline and all of this stuff versus the question of can education really solve poverty. Right. There, there was a terrific piece, uh, which from, from your alma mater, George Mason, I believe uh, Tyler Cowan is his name, an economist who wrote a piece in the New York Times the other day, um, which I, I would encourage everybody to read. They said, look, it's not the inequity, it's the inequality. Or it's, it's not, it's, well, that's exactly right. It's, 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 it's not the, the inequality, it's the mobility that, you know, it's, it's, we shouldn't be trying to solve. And what sounds like what Nirov is trying to solve is the inequality problem. What we should be trying to solve is the mobility problem. Well, I think that's a really interesting 
interesting point. And what I would like uh, ed reformers to consider more are the the cognitive sciences. And I think sure. this study could help us with that. The, I think we, you know, we sit here and praise Tim Shanahan all the time on the reading and the knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think ed reformers would be wise to look at the science of brains and the science of how kids learn uh, to ensure that our ed reform policies are not speaking in talking points and are actually pushing forward reforms that can work to get more kids mm-hmm. out of poverty. And, and now that you said that, let me do exactly what you said I shouldn't do, which is I, I, I'll make a broad over, over generalization. I think that it's fair to say that we in education uh, tend to be driven more by philosophy than science. Is that a fair thing to say? I think it's fair. Yeah. And on that depressing note, that's all the time we have for Pardon the Gadfly. Thank you, Ellen. Up next is everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you, Michelle. So, did you root for Duke or did you not root for Duke? I know. It's terrible because I taught in North Carolina. I Our family has a house in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, but I was not rooting for Duke. And I'm a Southerner <laughs> because I just, I always go for the underdog and I just felt like, what was it, 1941 since Wisconsin had won? And I just thought, oh, I kind of want to root for them. So I did, and my husband was rooting for Duke, and it made for interesting yelling at the TV. There you go. Wisconsin's a likable team, I will say that. Well, they got they beat Kentucky, so I was happy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, but you know, I mean, Duke is Duke. They are not gonna, you know, they're gonna put up a fight every single time. So, and how did you do in the office bracket? I did not have much luck. I unfortunately did not fill out the brackets this year. I just missed the deadline somehow, but it made it a lot less fun. I'm definitely like next year, I'm doing it again because it. I kind of feel the opposite. Know. I was like, it's not as fun now that I'm not going to win. So, <laughs> right. I, I was out basically in in the round of of, of sixty four. Done, done right away. Oh I was, wow. Well, I don't like how we set it up that you got more points oh. if you picked an underdog. I, I think Brandon rigged it. I, I'm just going to put that out there on the air. I know who won, by it. the way? Did you guys already talk about this? Liz Our producer, McEnany, Liz. Awesome. Our Irish national non-American <laughs> won the bracket. So that there shows you, you how, how good we are at forecasting That's basketball true. here at Fordham. All right. What do you have for us today? All right. So the Brown Center report came out recently. Mm -hmm. It's a trio of studies, but I'm just going to talk about one. Um, This is the study by Tom Lovelace every year. So it's called Measuring the Effects of Common Core. So obviously my ears perked on that one. He creates two indices of Common Core implementation by using data from two surveys of state education agencies. One is based on a 2011 survey that reports how many activities. So did the state conduct PD? Did they adopt new instructional material? Stuff like that. Um, that states have undertaken while implementing the CCS. And he basically said strong states are those that have pursued at least three of these things to implement the Common Core. And then he uses another index on the 2013 survey data that asks states when they plan to have implemented Common Core. And he basically says strong states are those that indicate full implementation by 2012-2013. Okay, so that's just a little wonky stuff. Um, He analyzes the relationship between the survey data that I just told you about and the NAEP data. And he finds that from 2009 to 2013, strong implementers outscored the four states that did not adopt Common Core by a little more than a scale point. Um, But again, the small, and he says this, he's fair about it. He says that that small comparison group of just four states makes it so the findings are just less reliable because, you know, they're just more sensitive to fluctuations. 
On the 2013 index, there was a difference of 1.518 points between the strong implementers and the non-adopters, which is obviously also pretty small. So there's that. But what's really interesting that I don't think I saw as picked up on in the press is this little, um, I mean, more interesting than a correlation study, is that he did this sort of dive deep into how teachers reported they were teaching fiction. And he found that fourth grade teachers, again, in strong implementation states, favored the use of fiction over nonfiction, hmm. which is what we would expect, in 2009 and 2011. But when you looked at 2013, you saw this huge decline, ah. like 124 Decline in Percent. percentage points. Yes, That's a lot. percentage points. So teachers were basically moving from more fiction to more nonfiction. It's working. It's so, working. But, but this is even better, right? right? I mean, this another little interesting factoid. Then on the bottom line is this non-adoption states. They had a decline, too, of 9.8 percentage points. In the amount of fiction. Yeah, from okay. 2009 to 11, which you sit there and think, okay, so one might take away that Common Core is actually having an instructional impact, regardless of yeah. whether states officially adopted the Common Core Yeah, that makes sense to me, not. actually. It, it, because I think one of the big messages around Common Core was, um, uh, news alert, kids need more nonfiction. And I think yeah. that benefited the field in, at large. Yeah, so... You know, there was a bleed over effect, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, that's also not surprising, especially if there's going to be common core aligned curriculum and textbooks out oh, there. Good, very good point. Right. A fourth right. grade textbook will have more information. don't want to own that they're adopting common core anyway, right? So right. they're doing it, but they're whatever. They Pay no attention to those standards behind the curtain. Yes. Um, but anyway, I thought at the end, one other point that he made just for like researchers, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to figure out a reliable mm. measure on state implementation because the stuff is also fluid. You've got states that are saying, I'm in. I'm out, I'm delayed, I'm paused, whatever. You know why I'm not sure he's right about that? Why? Okay, you were a teacher, I was a teacher. Mm -hmm. What's the most uh, the most powerful driver of your instructional decisions? Mm, me. Really? Well, God bless. <laughs> okay, for, for those of us who are not superstars, the tests, right? Yeah. So I tend to think that as as both Park and Smarter Balance uh, gain traction and teachers learn how to teach to those tests, I think you'll probably see those effects. Mm -hmm. I think, Just a hunch. Yeah, I think one thing that the survey data, let's, re let's recall who filled out the state education survey data. It's the state education department, some official, right? Yeah, sure. One person filling this thing out for... The entire state. <laughs> right. So, you know, we know that they're like, what does state implementation even mean? Right. Give right? that form to the intern. Yeah. So um, anyway, I mean, I think it's just going to be really tough to to measure this stuff. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't try because we should. And this is a, you know, I think it was a, a sensible effort. But um, anyway, it's just it's just going to get really, really muddy. Yeah. And Tom Loveless, to, to be fair, has not been a big fan of the Common Core. Right. So for him to, 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 to write this is saying something as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, and you said something similar, Robert, about another piece of research. I mean, folks can look at this and say, oh my gosh, this is just terrible. This is disappointing. Or folks can look at it and say, hey, this is kind of promising. It's headed in the right direction. Yep. You mean people are going to spin it both sides <laughs> however they want it? I'm, I'm shocked. shocked. <laughs> yeah, you're shocked. So. That's what it is. Um, and that's all the time we have for this week's Gadfly show. Till next week. I'm Robert Pundicio. And I'm Michelle Lerner for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.